Too many alerts and not enough action? It's time to get SaltStack. SaltStack is an intelligent IT automation platform that detects security issues in critical business systems and then actually fixes them. With SaltStack, security and IT teams work together to define custom security policies with certified checks for CIS, DISSTIGS, and more. You can scan systems for millions of compliance checks in minutes. Remediate compliance and vulnerability issues with powerful automation all in a single platform. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash SaltStack to learn more. Make sure your team is prepared to fight off the latest cybersecurity threat. IT Pro TV is the resource to keep you and your IT team skills up to date. You can stream IT Pro TV courses live and on demand, so there's no need to send staff to off-site training. Team subscriptions include Pro Portal, so managers have full control over your team's training schedule. Go to itpro.tv slash ASW and use the code ASW30 to try it free for seven days and receive 30% off your monthly membership. Sysdig is the first cloud-native visibility and security platform that eliminates the need for standalone tools like container security and monitoring. Using Sysdig's unique data approach, enterprises can solve a variety of visibility and security issues at massive enterprise scale for multi- and hybrid cloud environments. Sysdig will enable your organization to scan and block vulnerable images and enforce best practices pre-production, block threats, enforce compliance, and monitor application performance, proactively alert on incidents, reduce MTTR with forensics, and capture detailed audit records, all from a single unified platform. Accelerate your transition to containers and then have confidence in your ongoing operations using Sysdig. To learn more, visit securityweekly.com forward slash Sysdig. Welcome back to Application Security Weekly. I'm your host, Mike Shima, joined by Matt Alderman. We need your help in a survey we are running for research purposes for an upcoming webcast. Please visit securityweekly.com slash five stages of automation maturity. To submit your response on our five stages of automation maturity survey, we will share the results in a webcast in November. So Matt, it's been a while since I've found any good vulnerability talking about my favorite path traversal, but I did find something about my second favorite around percent encoding. And this was nothing too exciting, but it was just an article about percent encoding being used as um, basically obfuscation in phishing links, in links. So here is a phishing attack that basically leverages a URL parameter from a Google site to percent encode a destination. And really it just kind of highlights the fact that if, if all of our phishing countermeasures and remain you know, predicated on the idea that we have to trust people to closely scrutinize the URL and mentally decode base64 and percent encoding, then we're, we're clearly not doing the right things or we're, we're not solving the underlying problems in, in a good way for phishing. Yeah, I, what I saw in this article was just how simple it is to bypass basic uh, phishing um, domains here. I, I mean, this is a really simple technique that you would think that somebody would have figured out to check and, and protect for, but here they are using uh, the hexadecimal to ASCII character translations to bypass basic uh, domain checks. It, this is crazy. Yeah, and so it's it, it sort of, the, the OWASP top 10 had a um, open redirects 
on its list um, one release ago, but then it dropped off by being, you know, it wasn't as abused as much and it wasn't as prevalent as some of the others. But this is one of those examples that, yeah, every once in a while, especially if it's, you know, something that could be leveraged off a well-known domain like Google so that you have someone that says, well, I looked at the link, it said Google. Um, it just so happens that it also redirects to this percent encoded domain. Now the person was, they get extra frustrated because they said, sure, I actually looked at this. I even looked for that EV certificate. What, you know, was the URL green or not green because of that and all these things. So it's just one of those aspects I wanted to highlight from the sense of yay for percent encoding. It's pretty fun. And anytime you can throw a percent zero zero into a link to cause, you know, null terminated and other types of problems, highly recommend that as a, as a quick fuzzing technique. But um, it's also a case for saying, you know, let's have more, obviously, multi-factor authentication, but even also to the newer um, protocols or uh, like WebAuthN look like they're going to be much more promising for resisting against these types of attacks. Because rather than the human having to understand what the destination is and should I enter the password or not enter the password, it's actually WebAuthN is actually looking at the origin and saying, yep, this is an origin I'm familiar with here are my credentials, or, huh, this origin isn't quite right, and uh, and programmatically it knows that this is a Cyrillic L versus the, you know, a English L, and therefore it's this subtle type of phishing, or here's a percent encoding type of attack as well. Yeah, I just, I, I with all the technology we have today, the ability to do that translation, verify it against the basic parameters like malicious domains should be really easy at this point should be easy and i actually didn't link to this but there was also i think um microsoft and um outlook web access they they've increased their the number of extensions they're they're blocking by default from something i want to say from around 40 up to i think over 100 if i'm remembering the article correctly basically saying you know here are people get emails these emails have attachments, and these attachments might be like Python scripts or shell scripts or PowerShell scripts or EXEs and so on and so on. And it's basically rather than figuring out how we can properly do malware analysis on these and, and you know, and do is this a good piece of software? Is this okay to download and execute? They're just basically saying, mm, bad extension, forbid it. Um, so yeah, so so it's an interesting you know world we live in where you're you're saying quite rightly like this looks like a straightforward problem percent encoding computers are pretty good at turning that into ASCII figuring out is that good or bad what's that domain let's get block it but something is just missing in the approaches of what the you know what what the um, security tools security realms out there are are working on yeah. On the other hand, um, there is a really cool, um, with the recent Apple's um, release of new versions of Safari, they've also bumped their intelligent tracking protection from 2.2 to 2.3. And um, I thought it was pretty interesting because they um, have an, a, a nice blog post on webkit.org describing a few changes, basically describing that cat and mouse game of how they're trying to protect um, users from different ways of, of subtle tracking and with different ways that unique identifiers that can be dropped onto users' browsers that aren't associated with cookies. So in this case, it will be um, URLs and query strings with a fragment identifier or with a um, unique parameter value that might be attached to a some some JavaScript. 
And so they've done some interesting tweaks with that. Um, they're also doing some additional blinding to document.referrers to increase privacy of users. Um, so those are really cool. But I think the other thing that was really subtle that I discovered on this is that WebKit, when it sees a cookie with HTTP only, it will put that HTTP only cookie into a separate process from um, into a more into what considers a more secure protected process in order to prevent speculative execution attacks, meaning you know, Spectre, Meltdown, all these other CPU side channels. So I used to kind of be dismissive of HTTP only and be like, sure, it's, it's a great flag to add. Basically means JavaScript can't get access to the cookie. But the browser developers are really looking at this from a really fundamental architecture perspective. And it kind of speaks a little bit to um, that idea of information disclosure and what can we approach from an architecture viewpoint that Ryan was, was alluding to or that we were discussing with him in the previous segment. And so now that HTTP-only flag carries a lot more impact um, to the internal process design of what WebKit is doing. So, so for me, that was a little bit of... Um, a re really cool, you know, really deep in the weeds type of design, but made me made a light bulb go off for me. I thought it was really neat. Yeah, if I could just get the Safari browser to perform well enough to actually use it on a regular basis, I could leverage some of these cool <laughs> new features. But unfortunately, with with Chrome and, and Gmail and all the other stuff we use, I, I, I kind of stuck to Chrome. <laughs> Throwing a little bit of shade. Well, I'll, I'll be Team Safari over here and stick with that. So, <laughs> we'll, okay. we'll have we'll have to, next week we'll have to find something good to talk about Chrome and what it, what it's doing and it's with its blink. But uh, it's definitely also doing some great stuff. I, I would also want to highlight um, in browsers in general. So this is uh, a really cool. Um, speaking of information disclosure and side channels, I came across another link um, on GitHub. XS links. Leaks, sorry. Um, they're basically browser side channels. And so these are, it's basically a manifest of some different ways that different small bits of information can come out of a browser. Now, this information may simply be was a image visited or not. And this image could be something like a CAPTCHA or it could be something that's you know more security related, like a particular type of QR code, something like that. Um, but it's just really interesting that um, this person has put together on um, GitHub just a, a list of different ways that browsers, um, you, you can pull out side channel information about the DOM or about users, you know, visiting history. And so it just kind of highlights that particular threat model that now Safari, Chrome, IE, or I guess Edge, um, need in Mozilla need to be, you know, thinking against and trying to make sure that the, the browsers are as tightly designed as possible. Yep. All the fun. Um, I think all the fun. But I think now we kind of have to turn from talking about the browser itself into the APIs and the functions that the browser is interacting with. So, um, you know, here's another article that serverless security threats, those still loom. So there's a big, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about how many people are actually using serverless or, you know, uh, you know, Lambda functions, things like that. Um, and it seems to be not too many, but those that are, are pointing to better security, meaning they don't have to manage actual, um, you know, actual servers themselves, even if the management can be easy, you know, you do infrastructure as a code and so on. But there's still a lot of mistakes that can happen in terms of having over-provisioned privileges 
So having, you know, just giving, hey, this serverless function needs these privileges or it's not working. So I'm just going to give it a lot of privileges and few. Now it finally works, but it has access to other APIs. It has credentials or has other sensitive information in its um, environment variables. So we're starting to also see some good growth around the security concerns or security awareness maybe around using serverless. Yeah, I, you know, I pulled this article in because we've we've seen this trend continue to move forward, right? It's still in a growth phase. You know, Enterprise Strategy Group, who did this survey, one of the analyst firms, Doug Cahill is somebody I, I know I've talked to and briefed uh, a number of times when I was at Laird Insight and Tenable. And in what, we, what we're seeing is this continual evolution of moving away from dedicated infrastructure in the cloud to, you know, other types of platforms, including serverless, right? And even though you get better security at the core, there's still things you have to think about from an application security perspective. APIs is one, because all those API communications between your core application and the Lambda functions, for example, still need to be secured. You still have to deal with uh, access rights, as, as you said, Mike. But I also have to deal with container level security. I still have to worry about the configuration of the service, right? This whole concept of security is code. It's configuration code. Everything configure a configuration file in code. And so how do you validate that the configuration that you're setting up for all these new serverless um, environments are actually secure? So what we're going to see is a shift in where we need to focus our security um, measures and controls in the cloud versus what we were doing in our old traditional applications. Yeah, that's that's a really great point because it also is like all these serverless apps are largely, you know, they're going to be stateless because that's where, you know, that serverless design ex excels. But that does mean that state has to live somewhere. And, and that's going to be mm -hmm. in that notorious S3 bucket, that, you know, Elasticsearch, that, you know, those are where the misconfigurations happen. And so not only as you're describing all those security concerns for managing that environment for the serverless and the API, but you can't neglect what it's actually talking to. And did this serverless function just open up a bigger door into that data store for hackers to exfiltrate, to obtain that information? Mm -hmm. Agreed. I think maybe that um uh, I, th I think that's that's also topical too about describing API security because um we didn't mention this at the two or three weeks ago at the um OWASP um in DC the OWASP conference but the API security top ten um has gone into release candidate status so this is um a very uh, a very focused top ten list. Um, on API security. So unlike the OWASP top 10, the, the, the one that, that you know, started off the lists you know, the, uh, of all lists, this is pretty close in overlap, but it also calls out some important things like security misconfigurations, of course, but also API concerns around lack of resources or rate limiting, things that where APIs can be either rate limiting, not even in the sense of preventing a DOS, but rate limiting to prevent like enumeration or brute forcing to get into accounts. You can, you know, if you're brute, able to brute force and enumerate email addresses, for example, or other types of information. And um, so I just thought that I wanted to highlight that as another good reference for developers to dive into because so much of the modern web now is very much API driven. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, people are using it to update 
pull data out, um, it communicate to different services. And so you see this expansion, this proliferation of APIs, and that just means even just this top 10 gets multiplied by the tens to hundreds to thousands of APIs that are now being deployed as part of these new cloud native applications. Absolutely. So we'll we'll leave that that cross-site scripting the CSRF on the, the sort of that those front end concerns and pretty much everything else then remains that back end, that API concern the developers need to pay attention to. And that's also then um, kind of ties into this aspect of why clouds keep leaking data. And um, you know, Cloud Security Alliance is trying to be helpful here and they're pointing out um, some interesting aspects, because there is, and I, I didn't appreciate this uh, enough earlier, about that trade-off between how much should the cloud service provider reach in and analyze and look in your data, your configurations, versus, you know, that Amazon model where they're really extolling that shared, you know, shared security responsibility that says, we're going to give you some tools but we're not actually going to dive in and examine all of your code ourselves. We're just going to say, here's how to do it yourself. You're responsible for it. Yeah, and we're seeing an evolution of security tools coming in to, to address that shortcoming, right? They're going to maintain the underlying components of that platform or, or service, right? But they're not going to come in and dictate how you have to configure it. And I think that's the biggest misconception when people move to the cloud is that the, the configuration of that service is your responsibility. So we see a proliferation of new technologies coming in to integrate with the different cloud providers to validate those configuration settings. But here's the problem. It's too late. The infrastructure's already been spun up. Those holes in the configuration have already been exposed and probably already exploited somewhere along the way. Uh, so what I'd like to see is much more concentration by people that are moving to the cloud to focus on secure configurations prior to deployment. Now that gets hard because think about, again, a cloud native application that's run multiple microservices, communicating across all these different APIs means you have multiple configuration files to, to look at, but also the interdependencies of those configuration files. This is a really hard problem to solve, but one where I see if organizations can truly look at that code during the configuration process prior to it actually being spun up is where we can get ahead of this a little bit because a lot of these other tools are after the fact, and by then half of the stuff has already been exploited. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're really calling attention to the idea that sure, DevOps teams are nice. They're fast. They can release a hundred times a day. Um, so maybe the tech debt doesn't accrue too much in their code, but that configuration debt absolutely is accruing. And especially if they, you know, just set everything pretty wide open at the beginning, um, and then are trying to retro, you know, retroactively go down and, and tweak things and harden aspects. Um, that's not really the way to go. Um, we've seen a little bit where Azure has a, a way of um, decaying privileges where it actually says like, hey, this particular service hasn't exercised this privilege in a while. We're just going to rip it out. Um, so that's probably a good approach to help that aspect. Um, but again, that is still sort of that after the fact type of cleanup rather than that front end design to say, we actually have not only good code that we're maintaining and curating, but actually a secure configuration that the service provider isn't going to explain to us what it needs to look like. They're just going to say, 
here's a couple of the, you know, the, the, the places where things can go bad, really badly, like open S3 bucket, everything else is up to you. Yeah, but you see some best practices coming out from the cloud providers, which is great. But that's for a specific service. Now you have to tie right. all these services together and understand those interdependencies. <clears throat> what else is hidden in that configuration file? And Paul and I have been saying this for a while. I know configuration isn't sexy, but configuration and misconfiguration is what's leading to these leaks in the cloud because nobody's paying attention to it. No, absolutely. And to even call out one of one of one of your favorite topics too is don't give up root because one of the the, the points this article is making with um in um you know IAS is that once you give up root, that root account, that super admin account, that just has to be locked down, tucked away, and nobody touches it ever. You know, it has to be a much more granular, much smarter approach to all the privilege management within the, um, all of these complex services that are talking to each other. Yeah. Yeah. It, no one should ever give up root anywhere in their environment, container level, uh, cloud level. <laughs> it doesn't matter. You guys, you got to, you got to remember the concepts of least privilege and, and do not give up root privileges at, at any point. Right. This is, yeah, cloud native does not mean root native, right? <laughs> That's right. the wrong motto to go for. Oh, um, and then there were, so, so these are the, are the problems to highlight. There was one other article that was talking about DevOps success stories. Um, now, I want to get into them, but I, at a high level reading it, one was what was really interesting to me about it is that it was, two really big companies that had success stories, and then one success story that was driven very much by privacy concerns. So um, I kind of noting those aspects in the sense that you might not really be as huge as Microsoft, as huge as Verizon, um, or be like uh, Niantic, Pokemon, um, that has like kids, playing in, in, and with which brings even much stricter privacy concerns playing their games. Um, but I still think there are some good takeaways you can get from this particular article. Yeah, you, you know, the first one was interesting. This is basic 101, a vulnerability dashboard between the development teams and the security and IT teams, right? So when you think about DevSecOps for a second, sometimes this is basic, understanding where vulnerabilities are and sharing them across the teams. And this is a really interesting way because I've talked to other companies where this is like a major like show like every week they're fighting over vulnerabilities in meetings. Right. Um, where you can't get anything released because you're fighting over, you know, how critical is this? Does it have to be fixed, et cetera? By creating a dashboard and integrating the teams together and providing that visibility on a more real-time basis, they've actually made some improvements in their development process, which is great because that's like one easy step to move forward. Yeah, I think that ties into what Ryan was saying as well as like, you know, talk to the developers, let them both know how vulnerabilities can be exploited or what what do they mean? And then just give that inf vulnerability information to the developers so they can be aware of it. And then security team can bring in the context of why these are actually important. And that context can either be there is active exploitation, there are everything from, um, you know, this is the, the, the quote unquote wormable type of vulnerability, or just the context of, well, if you have this vulnerability, 
tied to this other one with this information disclosure, there's an exploit chain that suddenly has the context around this a little bit easier to exploit. And by the way, now it can be exploited on an area that has some pretty sensitive data. Um, yeah. So yeah, that, that just bringing that, sharing that information is fantastic. Yeah, in, in what I think application security folks, vendors need to understand is that there's, there were a couple lessons learned out of this. One is the dashboard pulls from a variety of sources, right? So it's pulling, um, it's pulling from asset management system, version control, code analysis, third-party scanning tools, configuration data, web and firewall logs. This is not a single pane of glass easily created, right? Because think of <laughs> all the different products I just mentioned in that. That's why these guys, that's why security vendors need to understand the integration of their data into either a dashboard like this or, or into the existing developer tools important. Uh, is part of how they think about driving their solutions forward. Because the big lesson learned here is ordering developers to fix vulnerabilities not a sustainable approach and only uh, helps you in the short term. Giving the individual developer immediate feedback on an ongoing basis empowers them to find ways to improve. And, and I think that's the big thing is that instant feedback, not this 300-page report at the end of uh, a weekly scan or a monthly scan or whatever and expecting the developers to get this stuff fixed. Yeah, and I, I think what you're also saying, it, it, if it wasn't explicit, you to make it more explicit for security vendors, is that if your tool doesn't have an API, like why should we bother with it? No, if it can't be hooked into a JIRA ticket that we can track the workflow or hooked into another data aggregator or something like that, then you know, no one's going to use it because that's just, you know, I've already got, you know, 15 tabs open on my <clears throat> Safari browser. You might have a couple on your Chrome, but just one more tab isn't really helpful. It's like, give, give me that API so I can pull that data in and use it, you know, more effectively. Yeah, give it right into the IDE or give it into the results from my from my build systems, right? It, it, you don't want yet another tool to be logged into. Yeah. And the one thing, and we talk about DevSecOps and, you know, doing security to having security strong configurations, um, having vulnerability information exposed to developers brought to their attention um, for building more secure apps. I did like this article because it was talking about um, Niantic um, in terms of privacy and privacy, you know, security is an enabler to privacy. Um, you, you, you need encryption, you need strong access controls, but there are a lot of additional concerns that DevOps teams um, need to consider that are also parallel to security when working with privacy um, and protecting data. And this goes back to a little bit of that, you know, intelligent tracking protection. What are different ways a browser can leak information or that um, what are different ways that a API can leak information? So go through that API security top 10, um, go through a, you know, do some threat modeling from a privacy perspective when you're working with DevOps teams um, so they can appreciate that privacy is also as important as security. And it also requires additional considerations, additional tooling, additional approaches to protecting that data. Yeah, and I think, you know, part of the reason um, we're going to start a new show tomorrow, actually, is around this concept of uh, compliance and privacy and, and how security kind of integrates with that. Because when we think about things like GDPR and the privacy regulation, we think about California's privacy ruling, those have impacts and implications to the business and there's ways to secure that data better 
and, and it's these kind of regulations, whether they're privacy or, or compliance-based, are going to have an influence. Security can actually step up and be an enabler to help educate the business on what the ramifications of these different regulations are around privacy and, and compliance and actually help the developers um, build ways to measure that and, and secure this stuff better as part of their development processes. And we'll, we'll see how this continues to play out. But, you know, GDPR is going to have a major impact already has to a lot of organizations, but I think it has more as other countries and or uh, other states in the U.S. decide to adopt some of this regulation. Yeah, it'll be interesting what we see in come 2020 with CCPA going into effect and how other states will react, as well as how different um, you know tech companies uh, will react as well, both in design or privacy policies, or will we get, you know, everyone's going, their e email inbox is going to be deluged with, we've updated our privacy policy. And uh, which pretty much sounds like, you know, everything we heard last, what, May 25th when GDPR was rolling out. Yeah, exactly. And, and we'll know when <laughs> things are really getting serious when we start to see a bunch of cases get settled on this. We're starting to see some with GDPR. We'll have to see how the California regulation goes. But yeah, just updating privacy policies isn't enough, but that's what everybody does first. So we'll, anyways, we'll see how this rolls out. We'll see. And do you want to, before we close out here, Matt, do you want to give us a little bit of a teaser about the, the new um, podcast that'll be coming out? Yeah, what well, we decided, you know, because of my compliance background and Jeff Mann's, we thought, you know, there is um, demand and interest in the market to learn more about kind of the intersection of compliance and security. And so we decided uh, starting tomorrow, Q4 starts tomorrow officially, that we were going to start a new security and compliance weekly podcast. Jeff Mann's going to host it. I'm going to co-host. We have a couple of folks from Redline that are co-hosting with us and start to talk about these issues of privacy and compliance and how can security uh, help address those regulatory requirements and build things not from a checkbox mentality, but more from a security program how do you build the stuff into your programs such that compliance with these new regulations are kind of embedded, uh, not a separate process? So that's going to be the gist of the new show. We'll cover a lot of the news uh, associated with new regulations and, and privacy concerns, and uh, we'll go from there and see how it goes. That sounds awesome. Looking forward to it. And uh, hopefully everyone listening to this will also take some time to check that out tomorrow as well. I um, want to thank you again, Matt. want to thank everyone for joining us and say thanks once again to Ryan. We are going to see you next week on Application Security Weekly.